Hello, I'm Dr. Gabrielle Carlson, president of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, here with you today for the next version of Screenside Chats. Uh, for those of you who haven't been intimately connected with the chats, they are um, intended to be informative and uh, reassuring and hopefully interesting and not too long and boring. And they are reminiscent of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's fireside chats, which helped get the American public through uh, the Great Depression and World War II. And this is developed to help get us through the COVID-19 pandemic. I've been asking national experts on important topics to talk with us. And today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Judy Cohen. She probably needs no introduction. Um, but Dr. Cohen is going to be talking about child maltreatment in the COVID-19 pandemic. For those who don't know Dr. Cohen, uh, she's a distinguished fellow and professor of psychiatry at the Allegheny Health Network, Drexel University School of Medicine at Pittsburgh, and the medical director of Allegheny General Hospital's Center for Traumatic Stress and Ch for Children and Adolescents. Um, at ACAP, she serves as co-chair of the um, Child Maltreatment and Violence Committee with uh, Jeanette Scheid and um, is the liaison to the Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Issues Committee and also a member of the group to prevent gun violence. She's a past member of JCAP's editorial board. Um, Judy has contributed enormously to the uh, field of child and adolescent psychiatry and mental health. She and Tony Manorino and Esther Deblinger developed the evidence-based treatment called Trauma-Focused Cognitive Behavioral Treatment, TFCBT, to those in the know. Um, and today she'll be discussing the intersection of child maltreatment and the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and how we as child and adolescent psychiatrists can be involved and um, can help our patients who have experienced maltreatment and trauma. So thank you for doing this, Judy, um, getting up bright and early today. Actually, I'm sure you know that uh, child abuse has been in the news lately because there have been drops in the rates of child abuse. Can the pandemic be making families so happy that they're not abusing their children anymore? What do you think is accounting for that? Well, thank you for having me, Gay, um, and for doing these chats. I really appreciate it. Um, yes, it's a very interesting phenomenon that the reporting rates have substantially decreased during the pandemic. Um, for example, in Pennsylvania, um, the rates have fallen by 50%, and that's true across many other states. Um, but we know that uh, the actual rates have probably gone up. Um, so, you know, what accounts for this, you know, disconnect? Um, so, you know, we have at least one data point already that um, suggests that the rates are not actually going down and families are not actually, you know, benefiting in terms of maltreatment from this pandemic. Families are not, you know, joyfully enjoying their time together at home. Um, although some may, there may be some benefits, but not in terms of maltreatment. So for example, um, in April, RAIN, the National Sexual Assault Hotline, reported for the first time that they received more calls from minors than from adults. Um, so that was one hard data point that we have. So we know that risks um, actually are increasing um, during these circumstances. 
So for example, when um, family stress increases, um, that is um, not good for child maltreatment. And we know none of us need a reminder of all the reasons why family um, stress is increasing now. Um, you know, the economic turmoil going on now is stressful for many families. Over 40 million um, people have lost their jobs. Um, families at home are, you know, struggling to, um, if they're lucky enough to still have their jobs, to work at home while they're also trying to take care of their children, um, to try to help educate their children who are not in school, to supervise children with lack of, you know, support. Um, from babysitters or childcare, daycare, um, extended relatives who they don't no longer have the support from, um, lack of resources, and so forth. So it's very stressful times. Um, and then, um, you know, you would think that there's more supervision because everybody's at home, but actually, um, you know, parents are stressed because they're trying to do their jobs. They, again, don't have that support. So children are actually having less supervision they're again not in daycare, they're not in school. Um, so often children are left to their own devices or older kids are watching younger kids, that's a risk. Um, and so when there's less supervision, children might be abused by older siblings, by um, abusive caregivers, um, um, or they're left online and they're online predators. So there are many potential um, risks for maltreatment um, in these circumstances. Um, and uh, some children are at elevated risk because they're dysregulated. And we know that it's stressful not only for their parents, but for the kids too, because they don't have their usual releases of being able to see their friends. Many children are stuck in apartments in close quarters. They can't run around outside the way they used to be able to. Um, so when children are dysregulated emotionally um, or um, behaviorally, that's, a, an, that's an additional risk for being um, physically abused, for example. So all of these factors together are contributing most likely to increased rates of maltreatment. And, you know, we don't want to um, ignore domestic violence, which is also probably on the rise now. So, so, what can we, so when, when, when we're finally sprung, or I guess we're not going to be sprung, we're going to be leaked. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're going to be, I think, probably seeing the wreckage of what's gone on. Is that where we're going with this? How else do you think the pandemic has um, impacted uh, neglect and domestic violence? Is there, I mean, you left almost no stone unturned, but is there something else that you wanted to add to that? Well, I think we as child psychiatrists can really um, strengthen the frayed safety net. So, um, you know, children don't have contact with the people who usually could detect and report child maltreatment if, if it's going on. Children are not going to school. Um, they're not seeing their pediatricians face to face. They're not seeing clergy um, in religious services. So all of these are mandated reporters. Um, who would typically, you know, detect and perhaps children would disclose abuse to, um, but they don't have face-to-face -face contact with those mandated reporters. Extended relatives, um, friends, friends' parents also are sources that children might disclose to or who might detect abuse, um, but um, these people don't have contact with children 
you know, other children now. Um, so, uh, you know, these are all uh, the safety net that children don't have access to now. Um, and so that's keeping child maltreatment hidden. Um, but uh, as child psychiatrists, we have the opportunity when we are providing services to children, primarily or almost solely by telehealth now, to inquire about safety. And we have an entree uh, into um, children's lives now. So we should always be asking about safety when we're talking to kids. Um, and we have a natural way of doing that because children, and for that matter, their parents are, you know, not feeling that safe related to the epidemic. So we can ask, starting, you know, about, you know, how are you feeling about uh, COVID? Are you feeling safe? And we can start by suggesting, you know, of course, as we always would want to, that we talk in a private, quiet, safe place um, and um, ask to, you know, that the child use um, earbuds or headphones or something so that they can be assured of privacy when they're talking to us. And then when we're asking about safety, start asking about how they feel in the home. Do they feel safe there? Um, is anything making you feel unsafe now while you're at home? Does anybody make you feel unsafe? And then segue into questions about, um, you know, anything going on at home that is uh, not feeling safe? Is anybody hurting you there? And so forth, specific questions about abuse. And then, of course, we're all mandated reporters. Um, if anything is not safe, doing some problem solving, brainstorming about ways the child can stay safe. And if anything overt is happening, to report it to child protection. So um, I'm kind of concrete, Judy. How, how do earbuds help? Earbuds allow me to ask somebody a touchy question, how can they answer it if the abuser's lurking in the background? Yes, well, there are some ways you can ask yes or no questions. Uh -huh. um, you know, if the, if the person, you know, if you're on the phone, they can say yes or no, and the person doesn't know what the question was. Mm -hmm. um, if you're on video, they can nod their head or shake their head. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, or you can use a chat box or you can type in the answer. Um, and, you know, if, the, if it's a yes or no question, you know, you can ask in a way that the child can give an answer so that the person in the background doesn't know what it was in reference to. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, you can ask, you know, is somebody listening into what you know, are you afraid to answer because you're afraid they can overhear? And if the child nods yes or says yes, then that gives you your answer that they're not going to be able to give, a, you know, a verbal answer. Do you feel safe typing your answer? Is somebody looking over your shoulder? If they say yes, then you know that it's restricted. And then you can, you know, say, can I talk to your parent? Mm -hmm. um, and you can talk to the parent and say, listen, I need to talk to your child in privacy about their concerns about the virus and so forth. I need to talk to them in a safe, quiet place where nobody is coming in. Can I do that? Mm -hmm. And if the parent says no, then I think that's reason enough to call child protection and say, I need to, you know, I have concerns about, you know, I can't talk to the child privately. They don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's enough of an indication. Mm -hmm. If they won't let you talk to the child privately, you know, and when you've asked to because of safety concerns, that's a, a red flag right there. And you um, 
if you have a relationship with a child, it seems like that would be an easy thing to do. What happens if it's a new evaluation? It, it, what are the, what are, what's the likelihood that a child is going to be willing to disclose those kinds of things to a stranger? Well, it's harder, of course, you know, when you don't have a trusting relationship. But if you don't ask, the chance is zero. So, so it's a don't. It's not a good don't ask, don't tell scenario. Correct, correct. You always have to ask, and you'd be surprised how often children will tell you if you, you know, tell them. You know, I'm really. I want you to be safe. It's the most important thing to me. Mm -hmm. um, you're guaranteed of not getting children to disclose if you never ask them. Okay. So, so that's a really important thing, not, not just to ask, but also to set up the situation. I, I think that when you call for the, for the remote appointment, one of the things that needs to be established is uh, they're going to be, um, I'm going to need to be able to talk to you without interruption, and I'm going to need to be able to talk to your child without interruption. How can we set that up so that happens? So it seems to me if you set that up right at the beginning, there's no there should be less paranoia about what, what is it that's going to be going on here. Correct. It's like, this, is, this is a doctor's office. I wouldn't expect you to get undressed right here in public. And so we have the same kind of situation here with child psychiatry. Correct. And it shouldn't be, you know, that, that it's all about secrets and we're delving into, you know, abuse or trauma. It's just the whole psychiatric evaluation is about private intrusive questions and you know a lot of things we ask are private so we want your child to be able to talk to us you know um, without concern about um, you know the, the dog or grandpa running in or you know whoever you so know. That, that, those those are all of my evaluations where the dogs <laughs> The gardeners right. are outside. <laughs> right, so we need to find a quiet, private place where the child can talk and where you, the parent, can talk to us without these interruptions. We have to figure out a way to do that. That's just standard operating procedure for us to be able to do an evaluation. And if we can't, then we're not going to be able to, you know, get the best information. And our evaluations, you know, when it comes to factoring in past history of trauma, of maltreatment, it's really important to get a comprehensive history anyway in order to figure out how does that factor into the child's um, you know sense of danger how does that layer onto you know the current fears about the coronavirus because it can add to their level of dysregulation emotional and or behavioral dysregulation if you add that level of you know, fear and real sense of danger onto what everybody's experiencing about danger now. Um, and you have to take that into account and understand their whole history um, in, in making your case formulation and understanding, you know, do they have bipolar disorder or do they really have a complicated trauma history that's leading them to be very emotionally and behaviorally dysregulated? So that, that, that past trauma history then, as you say, really adds another um, uh, risk factor in terms of the child's being able to tolerate or manage or cope with the current situation. Yes. And the parents, you know, whether it's birth parents or foster parents, being able to manage their current behavior and being able to understand it. Uh, and, and one of the things that we were also going to talk about was um, how... 
are there any specific special considerations for foster care children at this time? Well, in addition to the possibility that all of the, well, all foster children have a history of trauma of one form or another, um, whether it's maltreatment or parental substance abuse or, you know, all of the above. Some reason they're in foster care, yeah. Yeah, there's a reason they're there, right. But in addition, um, most likely they are not able to have visits, face-to-face visits with their birth parents and possibly siblings um, during the pandemic just because of safety issues. Um, And they probably have a heightened sense of concern, fear, you know, worry about their birth family's safety right now. Um, so doing anything we can, along, you know, to help the foster parents, um, help them stay in contact with their birth family, which may be challenging, to reassure them about the safety of their birth family. And this, you know, as individual, some of these kids, you know, are not that attached and don't care, but in most cases they are, and they do. Um, and, um, and in you know, some of the more extreme cases, these children may be so concerned that they'll leave the home without permission and try to check um, on the, uh, their family members to make sure that they're safe. And that in addition to all of the usual safety risks of what might happen if the child leaves the home and stays out on the streets overnight, there's the added risk of you know, encountering somebody who has the virus and becoming infected themselves and bringing the infection back to the foster home where there may be high risk, you know, children or adults who have medical conditions and so forth. So it, it adds to the layer of complexity and risk for everybody. Um, so, so one of the things then that would be worth um, considering is if you're evaluating a family, a foster family, talking to the foster parent and, and anticipating that and saying, you know, it's not abnormal for, for the child to be concerned about their birth family and so forth. So, you know, don't feel hurt or insulted or any of those things if they're asking about it. And, you know, you might ask the child, are you concerned about whoever they might be concerned about and maybe there would maybe there's something we can do to let you know how they're doing at, at least anticipate the fact that that might be something that could be done that would be um, a little bit reassuring to the, to the kid and and therefore help his behavior and help the foster parent in that right realm. ask the child what can we do to help you feel better what would be most helpful in the circumstances if we can't arrange a face-to-face visit, what would be most helpful? And also we as child psychiatrists might need to get creative if we need to change medication, understand that the number of caseworkers who are doing face-to-face contact visits to get consent is radically decreased in many jurisdictions. In one state, the number of those caseworkers has decreased from 1,700 to 300 in the whole state who are actually going out to do home visits. So that's, you know, we may not be able to get the birth parents to sign the releases to change medications and so forth. So, you know, we need to get creative in that regard. So, so that's, that's not one of the regulations that has been, uh, I mean, it wait, seems like yeah. many regulations have been put in abeyance wait. anyway. Um, yeah. Well, it depends on the jurisdiction probably, but we need to figure that out as we navigate this new world. 
that's nicely put. I was going to say muddle along. <laughs> I, I muddle, you navigate. Okay. Um, are there, um, do you see anything positive coming out of this? I do. Um, you know, it's, I'm in the business of, um, implementation and dissemination of, you know, evidence-based practices, primarily for psychotherapy, but um, trying to get, you know, practitioners to implement what works in the real world. And, uh, you know, the science says it takes a long time to get that to happen, like on the average of 17 years, which we didn't have 17 years to, you know, get things to change. But, um, yeah, I was, I've been inspired and amazed that uh, literally, you know, almost overnight therapists, and I primarily work with psychotherapists, um, overnight, I mean, within days, psychotherapists, and it wasn't just psychotherapists, it was um, organizations, agencies, um, uh, you know, the federal government, insurers, at least we hope insurers, um, will pay for all of this transformed from providing uh, care face-to-face to to providing it via telehealth. Um, And I know we have a committee on telehealth, but, you know, 99% of therapists out there and probably child psychiatrists were not doing this remotely um, until the pandemic. And now they are um, because we didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. And um, they did it because we had to. But they are, and, and when it comes to child maltreatment and domestic violence and children who have experienced trauma, um, the numbers have not gone down. Um, they have stayed steady, or if anything, they've increased. And I have really, I've been amazed and inspired therapists, you know, they have their kids, you know, at home, uh, you know, single parent therapists who are managing to do this. Um, and really quickly and um, on a shoestring, but they're doing it and they're doing it successfully. And, you know, we've supported them, of course, um, to provide evidence-based trauma-focused psychotherapy across the country. And, um, and, and I have to say, we're not going back because most families really prefer this. They like this. Um, and we hear over and over again, um, even when we can come back to the clinic, we don't want to. Um, so I have, I just have enormous respect for everybody who has found a way to make this change so quickly, make it work for the families and children who need this so much. Um, and I just want to thank them. I also want to thank um, so many, so many um organizations and people, but especially uh, the National Children's Alliance, who, um, you know, is the umbrella organization for all of the child advocacy centers across the country that do forensic evaluations, that have figured out, you know, it's hard to do a forensic evaluation, as you just pointed out, Kay, an initial assessment of a child who alleged, you know, child maltreatment, they've done those remotely and continue to stay open for those children who actually needed a face-to-face evaluation in the face of this pandemic. They've like literally in two days, they had guidelines up on their website for the 900 or so child advocacy centers across the country. The many child maltreatment organizations around the country that continue to support the, you know, the providers 
uh, psychiatrists, you know, pediatricians, um, uh, therapists uh, doing this work. Um, but um, and and also just everybody who's you know managed to continue to provide. So, so we've the, the the community right. the the treatment community has leaned in 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 many ways, and and I think you voice something that. I've felt and I've heard from our colleagues, and that is, yeah, we're not going to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Um, I think the the um, thing will be like for any kind of treatment will be deciding for whom does it work, for whom does it work adequately, but not optimally, and for whom does it not work. And so that may be further consideration. You you said something about um, important resources, and, and I know you there are a couple of resources that uh, I wanted you to have the opportunity to just say something about. We've got um, the links available to people at, at the end of this, so you don't have to remember what the link is. Just tell us about them. Well, our resource center, our child abuse resource center on the ACAP website has a lot of, uh, you know, uh, COVID-specific resources that I encourage anybody to go and look for. And you gave me a really tough task, Gabe, to pick out just two or three specific ones. Mm -hmm. I, I think everybody's um, inbox is swamped with resources, but I Absolutely. just wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to highlight a few from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, for us to use for parents. There's one for, you know, keeping your kids safe while you're at home. There's one there. There's one specifically for foster parents. Um, and there's one from the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. And it was a real challenge to pick just one from the NCTSN. I encourage you to go and look at all of their great resources. Great there's one that just came out literally yesterday or two days ago on um, calling attention to, you know, the, the special risks of children who experience sex trafficking. So I sent you that one. They also have a wonderful resource um, for um, children who have experienced traumatic separation or traumatic grief for the many children who very tragically have experienced the death of a loved one. So um, that's also available, um, a tip sheet for talking to children in that regard. And finally, I just want to call your attention to um, the telehealth resources um, on our TFCBT website that includes many, many resources from Sesame Street for working with younger children. And um, you have those resources as well. And finally, I just want to thank you um, for your presidential initiative on emotional dysregulation because that's very relevant to children who have experienced maltreatment and for everything that you've done during um, your presidential year so far, and it's been very challenging, and thank you for having me. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, thank you for the thank you. I appreciate that. Um, thank you for having me. Okay. Stay I, well. Um, I, um, absolutely. That Now when you say to somebody, how are you, it really means something. It does, yes. Take care. Take care. Thank okay. you all very much for joining us today for Screenside Chats, and I hope you'll be with us again on another occasion when we interview our next um, interviewee. I was going to say victim, but our next interviewee. <laughs> no, we're not victims. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you all very much for tuning in. This is Gay Carlson for ACAP's Screenside Chats.